Hello, and welcome to the Power Your Advice podcast, brought to you by Advisorpedia. In this series, we interview innovators from across the financial services industry to help you understand who they are, what they do, and why that matters to you and your clients. Welcome to the podcast today, everyone. My name is Mike Harris. Uh, I am with the Alliance for Lifetime Income, an organization out of uh, D.C. that was founded to help Americans address the risk of outliving their retirement income. Today with me is Tom West. Tom is a senior partner with the Tyson, Virginia Office of Signature Estate and Investment Advisors. Tom has a robust wealth management practice that emphasizes cash flow in all stages of retirement with an emphasis on planning and asset management for families facing the challenges of health-related dependency due to disability, illness, or death. Tom also has a significant experience in issues related to suitable and ethical financial strategies pertaining to incapacitated seniors. Tom was named the Advisor of the Year in 2023, an award created by RA Intel and the RIA Institute to recognize the top performers in the growing and innovative RIA industry. Tom's uh, community service in aging services has stretched for decades as well. Tom currently serves on the board of the Jewish Council for Aging. He's previously served in leadership positions on the boards of Insight Memory Care Center, the National Capital Alzheimer Association, and Goodwood Living Incorporated. Tom managed to receive his Bachelor of Arts in Foreign Affairs from the University of Virginia and his BA in Finance and a Master of Public and International Affairs from the University of Pittsburgh. Over the last few, over the few, a few years, uh, Tom has also managed to earn his CHFC, CLU certifications and the, from the American College, as well as the Accredited Investment Fiduciary Professional Designation from Fiduciary 360, receiving formal training in investment fiduciary responsibility. And with that, I'd like to say welcome, Tom, and thanks for taking time to talk with us today. Mike, it's great to be here, and thank you for the introduction. It's always good to come in and be made to feel good about yourself before we even get started, so I appreciate the intro. <laughs> well, you're you're perfectly, uh, totally welcome. Uh, where I'd like to start today is being with the Alliance, one of the things we really focus on at the Alliance is research. Mm-hmm. Really wanted to know the consumer out there, what what drives them, what motivates them, how they're thinking, how they're feeling about retirement, retirement planning, financial security in general, but also about income and and the possibility of, of are they going to have it? Is it going to last their lifetime? Everything that kind of bundles it into that. And we just released our latest what we call the protected retirement income and planning research study that we uh, did in conjunction with Canex, and we call it the the PRIP study, and it's available out there for people to look at. Uh, there are a number of top findings, though, I'd really like to kind of touch on today, and and I'll just start with 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 one right now. And there's it seems through our research that the consumers are telling us, and these consumers are consumers that use financial advisors. We've talked to financial advisors, we've talked to consumers, but the consumers, like I said, that we've talked to in this study already use advisors, all right? And it seems like there's a real 
kind of a feeling that they're they're not very optimistic about having enough money to last uh, through their retirement. I think almost I think it was like less than fifty percent think that they're going to have enough money to make it uh, and for the money to last as long as they will. And and you know that's a kind of a sad state of affairs since they're already using a financial professional to help them. They don't they don't feel good. And so you know what can the industry and do, and that includes the advisors, the insurance companies, what can we do to help those people climb over that fence of, uh, of optimism? Sure. What a, and by the way, what a great study and research. There was a lot to dig in, and I was excited to be asked to sort of opine on some of this. I think when I was reading the first piece about, listen, a general lack of optimism about financing your future, I think the role for advisors really is boils down in my mind to three things. The first one is, you know, playing the role of sort of sense maker or translator or, you know, interpreter, making sure that people can be as 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 educated as possible in terms of concepts like future expenses, changes in liquidity needs, priorities changing over somebody's life. Um, the idea of making sure that in, that their their clients are, are pretty comfortable with all of the different variables that go into a retirement income plan. I think that's the first one, sort of sense making and educating, because a lot of times when people have worry or anxiety, the idea um, a lot of times zeroes in on ambiguity. And I think in this first category, uh, Michael, the you know our, our role of trying to reduce as much ambiguity as possible when we're trying to make sense. That's I think one of the first roles of a good advisor. I think the second one, when I was reflecting on this particular element of the study, is approaches to solutions need to be very personalized to individuals. You know, when you're thinking about broad uh, statistics, like fifty percent of folks or whatever the number is, aren't aren't comfortable with retirement. When you have numbers that are too abstract, sometimes they become less actionable and more worrisome. A good advisor, I think, would be able to capture through really good discovery process, the use of story, the use of you know, uh, uh, examples from other areas of, of their career to try to personalize what kinds of possible steps clients can be making to improve their probability of success. Because Michael, if you're my client, like we're not, I'm not going to be very successful telling you, generally speaking, all the things that can be done to help all retirees feel better. I need Mike to get into what exactly can help you improve your probability. So the idea of making it very personal. I think the other piece too is sometimes clients that are worried, sometimes they just need to be acknowledged that Listen, sometimes your worries and your concerns are valid. You know, a lot of times, those of us in professional settings, we might not be comfortable, you know, acknowledging that there are challenges and maybe poo-pooing them a little bit. I think sometimes, you know, the idea of moving into an adult, grown-up, sober part of the conversation where I'm saying, you know, things are a little bit different. We are in sort of a new world. And even though the future might not be completely defined, there's all sorts of reasons for hope. There's ways that you can positively impact your financial future by choices that you can make, choices your family can make. And the idea, I always think that, you know, don't rule out, you know, the ability of an advisor to affect positive change and a good call to action on the part of the client. 
just by reminding them, listen, you're worth the effort. It's worth it to be able to take these steps because, you know, you and your life and your future and your priorities have value. And that little attaboy, that little girl, sometimes is a difference from people being frozen versus being able to take more concrete steps mm-hmm. to improve their circumstances. Okay. Well, you know, you, you mentioned uh, one thing you said there was, you know, things have changed a little bit. I mean, we're the the just the the world in general today is different. It was ten years ago, a lot different. I mean, we've seen some real dramatic changes. And and one of the things that came out of this study, because I'm I'm of that 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 age bracket. I'm in my early seventies, and about five years ago, our studies showed that people, the number one concern people had were most money. You know, I mean, uh, how how's it, how am I going to handle it? Is it going to last? What do I do with it? But in the last five years, that's changed. It was money and then health. But now they're more concerned about health than they are money. And the thing is, it, it, I don't know how how much of a, a big swing that is, because I, I look at that and say, how do you separate those two? Because they're both a very you can't, you can be really healthy, but if you don't have any money, it's not going to have much fun, you know? So are you seeing that change or are you, are you feeling that in your practice at all? Sure. And I mean, you know, coming from, if, if I remember those nice things that you said to me about in my introduction, you know, I've had sort of a finger on the pulse of health issues as it relates to retirement planning for a while. And, you know, I think that there was a good portion of my career, first decade, decade and a half, it was, it was, very much in response to somewhat unforeseen client events. And I built a lot of my service model reacting to it. Now we're getting clients that are are in advance talking post-COVID about integrating health and financial decision-making together. And, you know, this is a little bit of an acknowledgement of the new world we're living in. You know, the world has been turned upside down with COVID, 15 different ways that we can occupy all of future podcasts on. I think in my mind, part of our job as advisors is to affirm and help sort of define the reality that a lot of priorities with health and and finances really are intertwined. There is something in the way that we frame it, like how do advisors separate it? Well, maybe the idea is maybe advisors need to acknowledge that so many of these different priorities are actually intertwined. Like we're, we're living in a world right now where you know, the, the affordability of healthcare is, is also being compounded with challenges with just the access to healthcare. And it used to be we lived in a world where if I have some financial means or insurance, then, you know, that, that by itself would sort of get me to the front of the line for whatever the healthcare needs are that, that, that I, I might need to have addressed. Now that's is not quite so certain. And I think that helping, like one of the roles of, of a leader is to help define reality. I think one of the roles of an advisor in defining reality is to say, listen, in the community that you're living in, like it's true, we might need to be doing a little bit more planning, whether it's through products, maybe it's through projections, or maybe it's kind of breadcrumbing in advance. If you might need different types of health services in the future, where would you go? And how can you put yourself in a position to maybe not be um, uh, quite as far behind in the line as possible. I do think that the way that the United States is working right now, for better or for worse, a lot of times access to quality healthcare can be a game of musical chairs. And advisors already have the skill set needed to be able to project forward into sort of scenario build. 
So I would encourage advisors that are listening to start integrating the reality of these healthcare components to good financial priorities, and not necessarily try to pull them apart and, and treat them as silos, but to sort of embrace the reality that these kinds of things are interspersed and in, in flavor clients' priorities much more predictably than they did just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can understand. I can see where you're coming from. Well, you know, one of the earlier uh, when we first started talking, uh, you'd mentioned that the advisor's role is to help educate the consumer or the their client and and kind of you know be there to help guide them and and it becomes a, a topic of of communication. And one of the gaps that we kind of saw, uh, and I've said there's a always said there's always a communication gap or a chance of a communication gap between the advisor and their client. And one of those gaps that we saw was around the idea of protection. Now, protection comes in a lot of form. Could be protected income, could be long-term care, could be health insurance, could be, you know, I mean, a lot. There's a lot of different ways to offer protection, but protection is that that kind of that, that standard there, the word that people are looking for. And when we talk to advisors, which were on this part of this research, 77% of, of those advisors in the research said they talk about protection all the time, whether it be annuities or whatever it may be, life insurance, they, they're discussing the concept of protection. Opposite side of the question is, or the, the, the coin is that only 33% of investors Say their their financial professional advice brings it up, and forty four percent of those consumers say that they bring it up, while only fourteen percent of their advisors say that the consumer brings it up. So that tells me there's a pretty good disconnect or gap there that you you just I don't I don't know how you can really do what you say advisors need to do unless we can center those things up. How do you? How do you make sure the clients are, because especially the things you're talking about, how do you make sure the clients are hearing what you're saying? And how do you make sure you're hearing what they're saying and their concerns are? Yeah, the the results of that part of the research were fascinating. It really sounded to me like it's, it's two different tribes speaking two different languages and everybody's just sort of talking past each other. In my mind, the first time that I ever see researched evidence of significant miscommunication I always think of language first. Are the advisors and their clients using the same words to describe the same thing? You know, the idea of, you know, using the word death or disability or dementia or something that is that stark, um, that sometimes can be clarifying in a lot of these conversations versus using euphemisms, you know, pass away, like those sorts of pieces, making sure that the, the language is is mutually understood and agreed on. And I think sometimes advisors, if they're moving a little bit out of their comfort zone with having more challenging conversations with clients, might be relying a little bit too much on euphemisms um, at the expense of their clients feeling like they're they're sort of on the same page. But I think even beyond that, you know, I, I think that 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 Whenever, what advisors really can talk about is, you and I talk about this a little bit in the prep beforehand, is what are the consequences of failure where advisors fail to get alignment in the communication around these concepts of protection? There's two different sort of units of analysis. 
The first one is, well, what's the consequence of failure for the clients? You know, I think that the clients have been speaking pretty clearly in this research where not only did they feel like maybe these protection topics are not sufficiently addressed, but the idea that they're the ones that are bringing them up proactively, it, it really suggests sort of an acknowledged need that attention needs to be put here. Consequence of failure, of course, for clients is unprotected risk, whether you're talking about survivor needs or unfunded healthcare um, uh, expenses, uh, the idea of changing trajectories of a family's wealth, maybe for you know future generations, the consequence of failure for the clients are pretty significant. I also think like consequence of failure for the advisors is pretty significant as well. Like we'll recall, you know, some of the data points about you know the number of clients that leave advisors at the death or the disability of 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 a first spouse, for example, and the fact that our industry has a pretty crummy record of being able to retain clients after wealth passes from one generation to the other. Let's go back to what you said, Mike. The issue is protection. If a family didn't feel like the advisor was proactively helping to protect them in ways that are mutually understood in a conversation, this is not an advisor that is going to be adding value to maybe the next chapter of a relationship with survivor or, or, or future generations. So I think that kind of risk of retention and wallet capture of, 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 of future business, those kinds of things are material consequences of failure for the advisor, particularly. Right. Well, you know, and I, and I agree. And what, one, one thing, one topic I really want to leave you time here to touch on is one of the gaps that we kind of came up with in the research is that uh, financial professionals or advisors constantly overestimate how much they talk about what you call specific risks that their clients face, things like unplanned spending shocks, overspending, underspending, uh, you know, failure to, uh, to stick to a retirement plan. But one of those issues that they don't want to touch, and we're all going to face it, and that's cognitive decline. And it's, it's a very touchy subject, as you know, to start with people, and you, you, you're in the middle of this thing, you know, uh, neck deep. But how do you deal with that? And it's not just with the client, but it's with the client's spouse, their children, possibly their grandchildren. I mean, this is a generational issue as mom and dad or grandma and grandpa start down this process. And how do you handle that? I mean, you're you're very. That's where you specialize. Sure. Well, there, there's so much, I think, to explore on this piece. Uh, what I'll probably do is I'll break it into a few different places. The first one is, are we speaking with a family where there already is sort of an acknowledged or a, or a diagnosed cognitive impairment? I think that the big thing right there is to understand in the family dynamic, where are we in terms of the acceptance denial of the, the diagnosis to begin with? Because sometimes that can take us, Mike, down very different paths. The idea really is in the seat of the advisor, I want to help bolster effective decision-making on the part of the family through what's a new challenge that maybe they haven't had any experience before. 
And if one of the hurdles to overcome is just not maybe just the individual that, that, that is diagnosed with a cognitive impairment, but there might be other folks in the family decision-making structure that perhaps deny or aren't able to act on that reality either. So the space that you want to really zero in on when you're addressing an existing cognitive impairment diagnosis in the room, I think that the biggest thing is to remember first and foremost, you know, respect and understanding what people's family roles and identities really are um, is is got to be some of the mainstay of how you try to address this. I think it's very challenging for families that are looking at, remember we're talking about health and financial priorities. Once a family has already gone down the path of the new reality of a cognitive impairment, what's happening in the client's sort of line of sight is a new collision of healthcare priorities that they didn't have on the table before, sometimes intersecting with family priorities and financial priorities. And an advisor's role sometimes is to try to articulate which of these priorities should be considered more or less important. Now, the other piece, Mike, that I think is important when advisors are dealing with an existing cognitive impairment, I think, I think of the euphemism sort of begin with the end in mind. One of the sad realities of cognitive impairment, many kinds of dementia, given that there really is no cure, is over time, a family's priorities sometimes are overcome by health-related or cognitive circumstance. And the idea that I think early in a conversation, can we coach families like, listen, the most important things that we have right now, which is I want to be as independent as possible. Let's do as much as we can to be as independent as possible and full efforts right there. But we have to anticipate when that's no longer able to be sort of pursued, what's the next most important thing? And what's the next most important thing after that? By guiding families um, along those lines, I think that, you know, and making sure that they know that priorities change over time, I think that sometimes can help. The other category that I'd like to touch on is families that haven't faced it yet. I think that one of the regulatory changes that happened in our industry actually can be a good jumping off point for dealing with the topic of cognitive impairment, Mike. And that's basically new requirements around trusted contact forms. And I've got a particular technique that I use that I'd like to share that I think can be really helpful. I always like starting questions when there isn't a known cognitive impairment where, Mike, if you're my client, I start with a question, who do you think is in charge of your health decisions if you're not able to? And who do you think is in charge of your financial decisions if you're not able to? And we talk and we figure that out. Then we take a look if what you think is true is actually true. Do you have the legal authorities sort of transitioned? Are they communicated to the financial institutions and whatnot? I think that the trusted contact, when we do a good job of explaining what it is and how it sort of is protecting clients against some of the risks of cognitive impairment. One of the things that's been very powerful to me, Mike, it, it, after explaining trusted contact and we have your spouse and then your kids, et cetera, Mike, what is it that you want me to tell them about your financial priorities and your healthcare priorities? Because as a trusted contact, they might not necessarily be in the position of successor decision maker, but boy, are they going to be desperate for information if they're using that trusted contact thing to come back in touch with me. Mike, let's talk a little bit about 
what you want me to say to them in that moment. Because that particular example gives you the opportunity, Mike, to think ahead about the what does it look like if my kid's calling Tom my advisor? It's because of these sorts of things. And that bridge of helping you to start imagining a future where you might be less able, that, I, that technique of using trusted contact, I think, has very productively opened up lots of productive conversations. Great. And it all well springs from there. Yeah, yeah. right. That's right. Well, I think we're out of time, Tom. I really appreciate your time today. I know you're busy, but uh, hopefully we've been able to uh, provide some insight to some of our listeners out there to maybe help them down the path of making a little things a little bit better for them and for their clients as well. Thoroughly enjoyable, Mike. Thanks for having me. This has been a special guest edition of the Power Your Advice podcast. Please visit us at advisorpedia.com and follow us for timely updates on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook with the handle at Advisorpedia. For everyone at Advisorpedia, our producer, Julia Smolin, and the Power Your Advice podcast team, we thank you for listening.